This morning I've been asked to speak on uh, Christian authority and power, um, particularly in relationship to uh, the book of Acts that we've been working our way through, and also particularly in relationship to our authority and power in the realm of the spirit. So, thanks. So just before I start, I'd just like to pray. Father, I just thank you for... Lord, the wonderful truths that your name is above all name. Lord, I thank you for the power and authority that you have. Lord, I praise you and thank you uh, for this whole area. And I pray for protection this morning. I pray that we would have ears to hear what it is you are saying to us personally this morning. Lord, that we wouldn't just hear it and it would go in one ear and out the other, but that we would put it into place, we would make it an active and living word. So Lord, we just commit this time to you and, and just leave it in your hands, in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I'd like to start by looking at Matthew 28 verse 18. Just coming up over the head, I think. And it's the well-known verses of Jesus where he says this in verse uh, 18 then Jesus came and spoke to them saying all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth go therefore and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you and lo I am with you always even to the end of the age some versions there have the word power. All power has been given to me in heaven on earth. The actual true rendition of that word is authority. And that's the correct version there. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So authority and power, I would suggest, are very closely related, but they're not interchangeable. They're not the same. And this morning I want to look at several two-sided coins, and this is the first one. On one side of the coin is authority, on the other side of the coin is power. Just to give you a quick definition of authority and to explain what I meant by that, authority is the legal and formal right to give orders and commands and to make decisions. So authority is the legal and formal right to give orders and commands and make decisions. But power is the ability to practically outwork those orders and commands and decisions. So you see the difference there. One is the legal right to actually do it. The other is the ability to fulfil that authority. So we see in Matthew 28 that Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Just think about that. All authority. All authority. Where? Everywhere. So Jesus' authority is supreme, it's complete, and it's universal. Jesus' authority is supreme, it's complete, and it's universal. You can't get any greater than that. So I just want to lay that as, as a quick foundation before we look at our authority. 
And when we start to look into our authority as Christians, once again there are two sides to this coin. There's delegated authority, imputed authority, or there's inherited authority, which is imparted authority. Let me just explain that. Um, it's a bit harder for us in our day and age, but remember, go back a few years when kings were really kings and they had power and authority in their kingdoms. Imagine a king, he wants to perhaps bring in a new law or bring an edict out to his people and he gets his servant to come in and he said, I want to send you on this mission and I want you to go out and enact this in the community. And so if the servant went out to do that and he was challenged, he would have been given a piece of paper with the king's seal on it. And if anyone challenged him, he would say, look, I'm under the authority of the king. I have every right to do what I'm doing. That's delegated authority. The king had delegated his authority to the, to the servant so that when people uh, came across the servant, it was just as if the king was there himself. But imagine what would happen if the king did the same thing but he did it to his son. And one of his sons was sent out. He wouldn't just have delegated authority, he would have inherited authority. Because of who he was, he was a member of the family. He was a son of the king. And so that's, that's a different sort of authority. Likewise, power. Our power has two sides to this coin. One side of the coin is the power to do. The other side of the coin is the power to be. Let me give you an example of that too. In Luke chapter 10 verse 1 to 20, you remember the disciples, they were sent out and Jesus gave them delegated power to cast out demons, to heal the sick. And when they came back, they rejoiced and they said, look, even the demons are subject to us. And Jesus said, don't rejoice that the demons are subject to you. Rejoice that your, name is your names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And so um, those disciples had delegated authority, but none of them had inherited or imparted authority and power before Pentecost. If we turn to Acts chapter 19, if you can bring that up, Acts chapter 19, and verse 11, actually I'll start a bit further, verse 13. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Also there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leapt on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. So we see an example there of the seven sons of Sceva, who not only didn't have delegated authority, they certainly didn't have inherited authority. 
And that was the consequence. They were overcome by this evil spirit. If we go back to Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, Jesus says this, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You shall receive power. That word power in the Greek is dunamis, from which we get our dynamite. And it's the ability. Power is an ability to do and to be. Now, what Jesus said there was, this is new. This is a new power. This is not just delegated power. This is inherited power. This was new. Because why? Because they were going to be born again. They were going to be new creations, not just servants, but sons. They were going to be regenerated into the kingdom of God. They were now sons and daughters of the king. Now they had power to be, not just to do. You notice there, Jesus said, well, what he didn't say is, you will receive power and you're going to go around doing a lot of witnessing. They'd already done that to some extent. He didn't. He said, you shall be witnesses to me. You shall be witnesses. They themselves were going to be the witnesses. They were going to be epistles read of all men because they were going to change. They were going to go from being servants to sons. Our salvation, likewise, is a two-sided coin. It's not just positional. We're not just saved from hell to heaven, but it's to be dispositional from our old natures to our new natures. We're not just to be set free from Egypt and Pharaoh, types of the world and the devil, but from the desert-like living, the flesh-ruled life. So the key to all this, as Michael so clearly pointed out last week, is faith. Faith is the thing that connects us with the ability and the power to meet a need. We are saved positionally and dispositionally by faith. Our exercising of both delegated and inherited authority and power is all to be by faith. Why? Well, because God's chosen and designed his kingdom to work that way. Because without faith, it's impossible to please him, scripture says. If, if you like, um, before we had trouble with the overheads and, and power, all the power was there, wasn't it? But something was missing. It's like if we're in a dark room and we want to I put the light on, all the power is sitting there in the background. The lights are there, everything is ready to go. What you have to do is flick the switch. If you don't flick the switch, you'll never have any light. Faith is the switch that turns on the light and enables the power to have the effect that it should have on us and in us. So I've I just wanted to lay that really as a foundation because I think it's important before we start to get into the real crux of what I wanted to talk about today, which is our authority over evil spirits. And I want to share some thoughts on deliverance ministries and whether they're even needed in our current day and age. Now, I, I suspect for some of you it's going to be, this is whole thing's a bit spooky. 
you know, um, some people want to keep putting their heads in the sands as far as the spirit realm. I think sometimes we would rather go la 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 and not think about it. But not thinking about it doesn't change the reality of it. I believe not thinking about it and not considering it would be a huge mistake and would play right into the hands of the devil who is quite happy if we think and act as if the whole spirit realm really doesn't exist and not something to be concerned about. Um, it's probably easiest or easy for us to think like this in Australia particularly because in our day and age it's not something that on a daily basis we often come across. But you go to a heap of other countries around the world and that is not the case. They are very, very aware of the spirit realm and the power that they have and the influence that they can have. In 2 Kings 6, verse 16 to 17, I don't know if you remember the story, but Elisha was being attacked by the king of Syria. And his servant got up and walked outside and went, whoa, he saw all the chariots and horses of the king of Syria and was afraid. And Elisha said, Lord, open his eyes. Open his eyes to the spirit realm. And God opened his eyes and he saw all around the hills the chariots and horses of, and chariots of fire of God. And that more were for them than were for the enemy. But he didn't see that to begin with. And so I was thinking, I wonder this morning, if God opened our eyes right here this morning to the spirit realm, what would we see? I'm sure we'd see angels. But would we see anything else? Would anything else be any evil spirits in this room? I wonder. Do you know my bookshelf is not full, but I have a lot of books in, in my bookshelf about this, this whole area. Um, I just brought one along which is called Death of a Guru. I don't know if many of you have I read this years and years ago. I know there's Nick standing there that was going back a long time. Back to when we were probably at church together or even before when I first read this. Um, Death of a Guru is about um, a man whose father was the leading guru in his area. In fact he was such a devotee of Hinduism and yogi, yoga he spent eight years sitting in a lotus position, meditating, astral travelling, doing all sorts of things. But he, he hardly moved for eight years. And this man, um, Rabindranath Maharaj, was his son and he was due to be the next guru. And he experienced incredible things in that realm. And yet God delivered him and set him free. If you asked him, he would say, I know it's real, I experienced it. I, I was off into all sorts of things, and yet God set him free. Um, I guess this raises the interesting question that I wanted to try and tackle this morning, and that is, can Christians be possessed? Um, if I asked a show of hands, it would be interesting. I'm not going to, but if I did, it would be interesting. 
Can Christians be possessed? Well, the answer to that question depends on the definition of possession. If you mean, can a born-again, truly born-again believer who's filled with the Spirit be possessed in his spirit, the answer is clearly no. But can Christians, truly born-again Christians, be attacked, tormented, deceived, oppressed, if you like, and in these ways possessed by evil spirits? The answer is absolutely yes, they can. Can Christians need deliverance? The answer is yes, they can. I remember years ago, Derek Prince, some of you may have heard of Derek Prince. I know he came here, um, I think it was in the 80s. But I know he had a, a public meeting, I didn't go to it, but I heard that he caused a lot of controversy because in his meetings, people who were professing Christians were manifesting. And that threw a lot of people's theology out the window. They didn't think that was possible, but it was. I want to read two accounts to you, if I can. One is from War on the Saints by Jesse Penn Lewis. Jesse Penn Lewis was a Pentecostal who was involved in the Welsh Revival back in the early 1900s. And she and others were concerned that as a consequence of the revival and people coming into the fullness of the spirit in, in uh, churches all across Wales and, and other, other places, they were also seeing people accepting things as being of God which really they didn't think was. They thought it was needed, a book was written to expose falsehood. And like Michael said last week, when revival hits, all sorts of things are happening. And people can make the wrong assumption that all things in the spirit are from God. They are not. So I want to read this to you. In the spring of the year 1912, a lady who was possessed came here and the spirits possessing her spoke through her in voices utterly unlike her own. They would utter through her the most awful blasphemies against God and against our Lord Jesus Christ and would prophesy concerning the church. This is a Christian lady. Much prayer had, had been made for her and with her. When the frenzy came upon her, she is fearfully shaken and dashes about the room, made to howl like a dog and her hands clenched, her face drawn with horrible contortions. But the marvel to everyone is that although the frenzy is upon her every day, and sometimes once or twice or more in one day, her health is perfect, she sleeps well, and in the interval is the most lovely spirited Christian woman. A few weeks later, this sister is not one who has, hasn't got faith. She is well grounded in faith and has the same light as we have. But we have here to do with a demon, the like of which I've never met before nor read about. It would also be an error if one were to think that prayer and commanding had not been of any use. For in these last three weeks, God has done great and glorious things so that we are full of adoration. The demon is still there, it's true, but he has broken down mightily, so he cannot any more torment the sister. He is quite powerless to in her, and she looks so radiantly happy with a heavenly gladness, fresh and strong. 
Also the demon has been delivered of all power over her lips. Instead of the blasphemies and ravings, there is only desperate and plaintive howling, and that lasts all the time we pray. Um, just for the sake of time, I'll just... Um, she was delivered, and it took some time, but it's interesting that at the end, the spirit in possession had said, Oh, this authority, this authority which they have now recognised is an awful thing for hell. Pleading for mercy at another time, the evil spirit said, Do leave off your commanding. For three weeks I have suffered unbearable torments because of it. Don't tell any, anybody that we have to yield to the authority. Oh, these prayers of believers, they always pray and they are no longer afraid. And I just want to read uh, um, something that uh, I got from Colin and Marg Dennis, who many of you will know, if I can find it. Just an experience that they had of this, which is not in 1912, it's more up to date. Margaret and I were serving in the pastoral role of a small church. A young man, let's call him Nick, who had been regularly attending our church, had reached a dead end in his life. He'd come out of a very rough life in the world and now believed in Jesus. But after a few years, he was as, at a standstill spiritually. I tried to help him, this is Colin saying this, I tried to help him but nothing worked. I took him to an older couple I knew who were known for helping people with deep problems. I sat and watched while they asked him a series of questions about his past. Nick shared very personal and sometimes embarrassing things. The husband asked the questions and his wife took notes. This couple were able to discern the roots of Nick's problems. They then began to take authority over evil spirits that had taken hold over Nick. One by one, they would address different spirits, take authority over them in Jesus' name and cast them out. Each time, Nick would cough violently as if he was going to be sick. Then they would order another one to go and so on. Then they asked Nick to raise his hands in worship to God. They then prayed for the filling of the Holy Spirit and supported Nick for the sorry, as he gently fell to the floor. He lay there for about half an hour. The important thing was that Nick's life changed. Whereas before he was weighed down and unable to progress in his walk with God, now he had a freshness and motivation. The blockages had been removed. His problems, I discovered, had demonic roots. Counselling, Bible study, church services were helpful, but what he needed was to be set free from the demonic strongholds in his life. That experience was a revelation to me in the reality of spiritual warfare and the bondage that people can be under. The power in the name of, the name of Jesus and the gifts and calling of certain people in the community to help him. Having said that, we really need a right balance in all this. We can go from one extreme of seeing devils everywhere and blaming the devil for everything and giving him too much credit to not believing they exist at all. 
The truth is somewhere in the middle. Um, I heard a wise pastor years ago say that after years and years of ministry helping people in, in all sorts of areas, it was his opinion that 80% of people's problems were the flesh and 20% of people's problems were demonic activity. I, I, you know, I don't know about those figures, um, but I tend to generally agree that the vast majority of my problems and our problems in the church is the flesh. But don't dismiss the other as a possibility. It is a possibility. But evil spirits need ground to attack us. The flesh and any sin gives them fertile ground in which to take root. Being anything less than filled with the spirit gives them ground to oppress us. The devil wants to deceive us, to keep us as babies and immature, not realising and wielding the authority and power that is ours in Christ. They want to stay hidden and unexposed so they can do their dirty work in secret. They want us to have a siege mentality in the church and not go on the offensive. They want to do anything to hinder us from actually rising up and taking back ground from the powers of darkness and advancing the kingdom of God. One of the enemy's greatest tools for doing this and gaining access to us is a thing called passivity. And I'll explain what I mean by passivity. Passivity of the mind, passivity of the will, passivity in the soul. Eastern religions, particularly things like yoga, transcendental meditation, mantras, drugs, wrong meditation, are designed for us to blank our minds, to empty our minds and, and sort of be wafty. That's prime ground for the enemy to work and come in and deceive us. We can also have a wrong concept of what it means to even surrender as a Christian. We can think that we need to surrender our wills, for instance. I don't see that in scripture. I don't see that as a scriptural thing, expression. God wants to free our wills, but then he wants us to exercise them. He wants us to exercise our wills to bring our wills into line with God's will. That's why he's given us a will. We need to ask God for discernment. Um, I remember Michael last week, I think he talked about three instances in Acts, gave us examples of where the early church uh, used the gift of discernment. But oh, how we need the gift of discernment in this area to discern what spirits at work, to test the spirits, the Bible says, whether they be of God or not. Don't believe every spirit is of God. Remember, the enemy can change himself into an angel of light. I remember um, reading once that this brother had had a, uh, like a, an encounter with, a, with an angelic being. And this angelic being was trying to influence him and give him direction in his life. And suddenly he had a check in his spirit. And he thought, I don't know if this is right. And so he turned to this angelic being and said, show me your hands and your feet. I want to see the nail prints. Because this angelic being was making themselves out to be Jesus. 
and suddenly, bang, it disappeared. That was an angel of light, if you like, a deceptive spirit trying to get a grip on this guy's life. Check everything. Make sure it's got a right ring to it. You know, is it of silver, gold and precious jewels or is it wood, hay and stubble? Is it junk? Does it not ring true? Just to touch on deliverance ministries for a moment. I, uh, just a comment. I don't find anywhere in scriptures where Jesus, Paul, any of the early apostles encouraged a separate ministry of deliverance. They dealt with possession and evil spirits when they came across them. There's several instances in Acts 5, 16, 8, 7, 16, 19 that I could see in Acts where in the process of them living out their life of Christianity it exposed demonic activity and as it arose they dealt with it but they didn't go around looking for it they dealt with it as it arose and they took authority over it and, and exercised authority and power as it got stirred up by the early church They cast out, they bound, they took authority over it and rebuked in Jesus' name. But to me, they dealt with it as an expected side effect of preaching and living out the gospel, as part of the stirrings up that Michael alluded to last week that follow the gospel and our lives living as we should. So do we need just a, another thing that I would like to put out there? Do we need to go delving into the sins and practices of past generations before we can be totally freed? Some of you would have come across that. Particularly, as an example, would be Freemasonry. Freemasonry, with, if you've looked into it at all, has got at least 33 degrees. Each degree is an initiation, and the initiation definitely puts a curse on the person and more than likely on their family. It's, it's abhorrent. Do we need to go back, once we become Christians, and renounce all 33 degrees of our forefathers and repent for them? Do we need to be set free of each curse that's come upon that person? Generally, I don't believe so. Not unless the Holy Spirit leads you to do it, of course. Otherwise, that means repentance, believing, receiving and being filled with the Holy Spirit is not really enough. And I believe it is. How does someone who repents on their deathbed get really free if they haven't got time to go back and renounce all 33 degrees of Freemasonry? They can't. But we need to be ruthless. If we look back in Acts 19 again, with the sons of Sceva and what happened there, it goes on to talk about the magicians and the sorcerers that came out of what they were doing. And they, what, what did they do? They got all of their books together and all the paraphernalia of, of what they were doing and they burnt the lot of it. It said it, it valued at 50 million pieces of silver. Uh, sorry, 50,000 pieces of silver. Um, I don't know what that would be worth in today's... Uh, 
currency, but it would be a lot of money. Couldn't it have been sold and given to the poor? Couldn't they have used it for the use in the kingdom of God? No, they burnt the lot of it. They were ruthless, and I encourage you to be ruthless. I remember in my early days, I was ruthless. I had books and records and stuff that I knew God wasn't happy about. And a neighbour and I had a big bonfire and we burnt the lot of it. We were ruthless. It's good to be ruthless. Be ruthless with things in your house. Things that might be, you might think are harmless. Things that have come from overseas. Frogs and monkeys and elephants and you mightn't think anything about them. Buddhas. Paraphernalia from, maybe it's, you've been given your grandfather's Freemasonry paraphernalia. Get rid of it. Burn it. Chuck it out. Be ruthless. Don't give the enemy any ground in that way. And be ruthless inside, in you. God puts his finger on something, put it to death. Allow God to crucify the flesh in you. Be ruthless. I believe one reason that sometimes Christians need help in this area of deliverance after they've become Christians is because they've responded to a half a gospel. They've responded to a positional, positional salvation. They've trusted Jesus to save them from hell to heaven, but they haven't allowed him to deal with them. They haven't allowed him to deal with their disposition, with their old natures. So do we need deliverance ministries? Well, yes. My conclusion is yes, I still think there's a need for deliverance ministries. I was, Gary's not here today, but I was going to say to him, Gary's a physician, and he's got expertise in a lot of areas as a doctor. But I'm sure if I asked him, I would say, Gary, are there areas where you go to a specialist, where you refer someone to someone who's even more specialist in a field than you are? And he would say, I bet he'd say, yes, of course I do. I think because the church generally, especially in the West, has not exercised their authority and power as the early church did, I think there is a need for specialist ministries. So it's, it's a yes and a no. Do we really need them? Well, probably in an ideal world, and if we lived like the early church did, no. Because we would all be taking authority and power. We would all be exercising what we should be as individuals. But is that happening? Probably not. In fact, certainly not. Remember, the goal is to set people free. However we can do that, let's use it. If you need to go to a specialist in this area, go to a specialist. That's fine. So just some final thoughts and suggestions for us. The first is we need to begin with us. Before we can go out into the community, before we can deal with other people's problems, we need to make sure our foundations are right. We've, wanting, we've been wanting as a church for these teachings on Acts to be a mirror. And a mirror can be uncomfortable, can't it? We don't really want to see ourselves 
as we really see us. I mean, like, guys are really good at this. Did you know that? We can see ourselves naked and think, oh, that still looks pretty good, you know. Whereas a woman will see the slightest fault and, and say, oh, no, I look terrible and I look at all my faults. But us men can deceive ourselves into thinking we're better than we are. So let God's word and what he's been saying to us be a mirror, even if it's uncomfortable, even if you have to say, oh, I don't like what I'm seeing or I'm not living up to that. I'm falling short or maybe I need some deliverance I hadn't realised. Well, let it be a mirror. Don't, don't be afraid. Don't, don't put off what God's offering you. He's offering you freedom. Freedom from your old natures and freedom from evil activity. Make sure your foundations are on the rock. Make sure that your authority and power is both delegated and inherited. That your salvation is both positional and dispositional. Live and walk in the light and don't go around cursing the darkness. It's better to walk in the light than curse the darkness. It's where your focus is. Do you see what I'm saying? It's where your focus is. Your focus has to be on Jesus. Your focus has to be on the light. As the other stuff comes up, yes, deal with it. But don't go around looking for it. Put on the whole armour of God and stand and pray. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. And if you come across suspected demonic activity in you or in others, firstly repent and confess all known sin because there's no point in having deliverance ministry if you haven't repented of the sin or repented of the cause of it. Otherwise, you're going to be worse off than before. Then by faith appropriate and use the authority and power that is ours as the children of the king. Seek out expertise if you need it. Remember that greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. Worship. Evil spirits hate worship. They hate being around worship. They don't like it. So worship, not just for that reason, worship because God's worthy of worship. But as a consequence, they won't want to be around it. Speak about and claim the precious blood of Jesus. Take authority in his name. Stand and proclaim the word of God. Tell the spirits to name themselves and then specifically cast them out if you have to. And when I say tell them to go, I mean command them to go. You should speak to them like a dirty, rotten dog that's disobedient to you. That's what they are. They're dirty, rotten, evil spirits. And you can command them and tell them in no uncertain terms, get out. Take authority over them. Consider that sometimes you'll need to pray, pray and fast. There's no set formula here. I'm not trying to advocate any sort of a formula. We need to be led by the Spirit. But be aware that evil spirits want to stay hidden and unexposed. Ask for wisdom and discernment. They may resist, but sooner or later they have to obey because all authority and power has been given to Jesus Christ everywhere, universally, totally. 
Resist the spirit of fear and remember that perfect love casts out all fear. This realm can be a bit spooky, it can be a bit fearful. Don't let it get to you. I mean, I was attacked by a guy with a spirit of antichrist years ago and, and he, I, I was preaching and sharing with him and trying to, to set him free and he was into Islam in a big way and the spirit in him started to manifest and I, and I said Jesus is the I am and he started to say the spirit in him says I am the I am, I am the I am and so I knew exactly what was going on and I went to say something to him and the, the spirit in him grabbed me round the throat and across the mouth and wouldn't let me speak. And then he fled out of the house and was ranting and raving up and down the, ro the road. I admit that at the time that was a bit scary. <laughs> and, but don't let the spirit of fear stop you from acting and moving in this realm. Remember, we have the victory because Jesus has already won the war. Hallelujah. One final comment. Once we're set free, and once others are set free, we re need to replace evil with good. It's not just deliverance into a vacuum. That's important, really important. We need to replace error with truth, the word of God. We need to replace misery and torment with joy and peace. We need to walk in the Spirit, be filled with the Spirit, be led by the Spirit, or else evil spirits can come back way worse than before. Jesus said that in Matthew 12, 43 to 45. He taught that. He said if a, if a room swept clean, the evil spirits can go away for a while and then they can think, oh, I'll go back and take up residence where it was nice and nice and swept clean and seven of them can come back and that person's worse than before Jesus came to set the captives free he did everything that was required to accomplish this on the cross on his part it's finished but now he is wanting his church you and me to outwork his amazing victory to apply and wield the authority and power he has given to us and to take ground off the powers of darkness, firstly in us and then in others. So just let me pray. Father, we've covered a lot of ground this morning and it's probably stirred up thoughts and feelings and emotions and stirred up some spiritual things. Father, I pray that we would not be afraid of looking in the mirror. Lord, we don't have to go around looking for the enemy, but if he raises his ugly head, help us to be aware and discern what's going on. Lord, you have wanted, you have come to set the captives free in every sense of the word. Father, I pray for every one of us here that we would be really walking in the freedom that you've won for us, the victory that you've won for us, the abundant life that you've won for us. And Lord, that we might go out and then minister that freedom and that victory to people we come across. Lord, that we would see some stirrings up, that we would see some, some activity in this way. Lord, because that's a sign of your presence, where you are. So Lord, I just pray that uh, we would... Take these things to heart and Lord, put them into practice 
and if necessary, ask for help. So Lord, we just commit ourselves into your hands again in Jesus' name. Amen.